0: Dania, thank you for taking some time to join me on the podcast today.
1: Thanks a lot for having me. I'm very excited about it.
0: Yeah, it's going to be great. I uh, I must admit, when I was doing some research into you, I watched a few interviews that you'd done either with the Wilson team or elsewhere, and I was just thinking, you sound like you've got a really interesting backstory. And even now, you know, you're involved in alternative assets and alternative investments, which is just a, it's just fascinating to me. So. Um, there's a lot I want to get through. I want to explore a bit about your car- yeah. career and how you think about portfolio management, construction and asset allocation and those mm-hmm. types of things. But there was one line, and I've got it here, um, which said that Dania commenced her investment career as a foreign currency trader working for a bank in Russia before joining Russell Investments in the UK as a real estate investment analyst. So <laughs> I'm just, I'm just <laughs> thinking there's so there must be so much... That And I, I looked at your LinkedIn profile and I saw things that you'd done in the past and I was thinking, wow, like all around the world, um, every <laughs> asset class it seems. And I, was, I probably can't capture that all. We probably can't capture all of that in one conversation. So I was thinking, uh, are there some stories that you might have or, you know, lessons learned over your career at these various points mm-hmm. um, that you can reflect on now and maybe share with us?
1: Yeah. Gosh, lots of <laughs> lots of stories. <laughs> it's, sorry, it just sounded so funny when you um, yeah, when you talk about that <laughs> journey. But I do get this question a lot um, you know, and I, I do get other questions on top when I say where I'm from and often people don't believe me because I don't really look um, like, um, you know, my other peers from my homeland. <laughs> but, um, you know what what comes often to my mind when I think like about certain turning points um, that shaped um, shaped me as a as a person shaped my life, and one of the first ones often um, is my passion for reading. Um, so, and, and it, it started really at an early age, and um, my dad, he always collected books. We have a huge library at home, and um, I. there was a period when I got into science fiction, and one of my favorite writers still is. So, he has this story called um, Fahrenheit 451, and one of the characters uh, there says um, stuff your eyes with wonder leave as if you drop dead in 10 seconds see the world because there is nothing more beautiful um, than Mm. this experience and I I think you know it sums up a lot in um, how I went through my life and Plus, my childhood uh, was very, you know, intellectually stimulating. Yeah. I would say, like, I'm the communism, um, and I was, you know, I still got into this period of, like, getting the um, the, the Lenin star and then the, like, you know, the pioneer tie. Um, and then when I was 10... Um, perestroika happened so uh, it was 1990 and basically the life um our lives just changed um and the change happened so quickly and i think for me you know and for other of my peers it was a stimulating experience you know because that also mm-hmm. meant the border is opened and we could finally travel. Um, the school program changed, like what we're being taught at school. Um, the accessibility to various literature and information has changed. So it was like an opening into a new information. And my like by nature, I'm a very curious person. I love learning. Um, so you know that experience growing up in that very you know historical phase uh, helped me seeing maybe things that some of my friends you know in in the UK in Europe in the US they don't necessarily see or they haven't seen it because they they just grew up different with different experiences and you know from there it really started. I wanted to travel, I wanted to discover the world, I wanted to learn different languages and cultures, and I somehow uh, went to a school, um, and that was before Perestroika, I went to a school that uh, was a school for German families in, in my hometown, so half of the subjects were taught in German, and that was my first foreign language, I started mm. it when I was seven Um, and you know that from there I'm spending a lot of time from there it's good Um, you know I I traveled a lot I went uh, nearly every summer throughout my school years to Germany to continue improving my language um, skills and um, I learned a lot what was happening in Russia at the time in terms of political changes, economic changes and really what grabbed my attention was this huge cha- change within the financial system or banking system and at that time that, that was probably you know very common for many um, former USSR republics that you had very centralized Russian system where sorry with centralized banking system where you'd have central bank and then you know government saving bank and bank for international trade and and then after very all started changing and we had like new private banks popping up like mushrooms (laughs) and and then they would disappear within a week Uh, (laughs) so you know it was all very interesting to observe that when it came to making a decision what I want to do, like where do in terms of continuing my studies after school. Um, after, you know, discussing it with um, my dad, he he really encouraged me to look into finance and banking um, because it was really one of the sectors at the time that was going through huge evolution, through huge change. And it was actually really interesting to watch it and be part of it. And you know, that that was how I made the decision. And um I had, to be honest at that time, no idea about investing or banking or financial sector. You know, I I loved literature and languages. <laughs> so it was like, you know, moving into a new world. Um and and I really loved it. I loved it. It opened so many doors in terms of new um, areas to learn about. And I uh, quickly realized that at the same time, like I wanted to continue studying abroad. So, I did go and, um, you know, did like an exchange year in Germany at the university. So that all laid a bit of a foundation. You know, when I go back to your initial question, how did you end up here? Um, I think I always wanted, I wanted that challenge. I wanted that experience challenge. I wanted that intellectual challenge uh, to feed my curiosity. and you know, the, it it was a long road, and not necessarily I was making proactively every decision mm-hmm. about you know, moving to different countries. It's sometimes you know just life leads us through. You know, you meet people, mm-hmm. you start to get new experiences, experiences, and um, things start happening. Um, so. Uh, You know, I wouldn't claim I meet nowadays incredible um, young people who know exactly straight after the uni what they want to do, how they want to do it in a very structured way. You know, I was nowhere close Mm -hmm. to that. (laughs) It all came over time and still evolving. Um, But look, and and for me, um, I had opportunity When, um, you know, I completed the studies um, in in Europe, I had this opportunity to go and do three months um, training program with Russell Investments. And that was at the time in the Tacoma office uh, near near Seattle. So Mm -hmm. I did spend three long rainy months (laughs) (laughs) living in Seattle and commuting to Tacoma Um, and That really gave me such a good insight into other asset classes. So just thinking more broadly um, about global equities, fixed income, and then alternatives, that was probably the first milestone that also shaped me in terms of what I really found interesting, what I wanted to learn. Um, I would also add just reflecting back on the experience um having around me really strong role models helped a lot I I only now perhaps realize the impact that those people um made on me and you know one of those uh, moments was when I started uh, just after the university I started working, for, for a privately owned bank um in, in my hometown back in russia and the CEO, CIO, and CFO were all female professional, mm. which was very, very unusual <laughs> at the time. And to me, it was more like an inspiration. You know, it's it's all possible. You you don't have to feed into that um you know, social model at that time where, you know, a, a woman would take on um, the role of, you know, building out the family and raising children that it was, there was more to that. And it was possible to achieve that by working uh, with those women. I really realized it is possible mm. and it is possible to have it all um, so that that was kind of another um you know incredible experience that I had um when you know when when deciding on my next steps.
0: Mm. How many languages do you speak?
1: So I speak I speak German. That's like you know my favorite. I love German. Um I speak Russian. I speak some Tatar. So I um, my you know, ethn- ethnical identity is Tatar, which is a very, very different language from Russian. Um, and I speak Spanish. I can speak a little bit of Italian. And, you know, I would, if I had time, I would love learning more. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we well, obviously speak English as well.
1: <laughs> I speak English, yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow. Have you got... Um... So, for someone that does not speak any other language other than a very broken amount of um, Polish, uh, have you got any strategies for learning languages? Like, is there anything that's worked for you over the years?
1: Um, to me, it was about building the foundation. And so, you know, basically, I, I'm a very like I always need structure in the head. I need a framework. So. I always start with understanding the foundation of a language, um, you know, the alphabet and the the grammar and then building out on that foundation. And the best way to build out is to actually go and live in the country um, and, you know, have friends. <laughs> like the, the, the reason really, I, I remember I decided, oh, I, I want to live uh, to, to learn Italian because when I lived in London, I shared the house with my Italian classmates from Torino. And it was inevitable for me to start picking up Italian. And then I went for like uh, two months to live in Italy to do Italian course because I just wanted to be, you know, I wanted to speak Italian to them and I wanted to read uh, books in Italian. And yeah, it's...
0: (laughs) (laughs) So you said you're a very curious person. And if you speak speak, say, five or six languages, um, I don't know how you couldn't be curious. how like how about then, you know one of the questions that I wanted to ask you was engaging people and like I guess, people from all walks of life uh, is really interesting to me and how we form teams. Um, and you know teams are quite interesting because I think, one thing that I've had drummed into me over the years Daniel, is that it's important to get so many diverse opinions, but you also have to be joined at the hip by a philosophy um, because you can't, you can all be different, but if you're going in different directions, then it doesn't make that much sense. So maybe I'll just throw it over to you in terms of how you think about the benefits or, or, you know, pros and cons of having a, and building a diverse team
1: gosh that's a uh, you know question number 1 when you think like governance and culture and it's such an important area for me more like even if i think from the investment perspective um and you know we we can we can talk later in terms of how we invest within WMA, but Uh, we do work closely with our investment partners. And so for me, that's often one of the first questions that I want to understand, you know, who are the people in the team and, um, you know, how much diversity there is in terms of the experience, background. Because the reality is, Owen, that when you have a very very plain team like let's say it's um let's talk about one of the you know one of the four top business strategy consulting firms um they would have very lean profile in terms of the people who work there and they tend often to breed people from you know graduate positions up to the partners level mm-hmm. and there is you know, a purpose for this um, because they wanted to be very effective and streamlined when they work on a project. And the reality is it's easier when you have Hmm. teams that think alike and come from similar backgrounds. In terms of managing teams like that, it often may come across, well, that's that's just easy. We'll just hire people who are similar to us, who think the same as us. And it's often uncomfortable. Any change, right? Like any change for anyone can be really uncomfortable. So when you start bringing in people who are from diverse backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, nationalities, um, experience, work, etc., you do need to understand why you are doing this. What's the purpose? of this and then as you said to have very well-defined core beliefs and mission statement to make sure everyone in the team understands where we are going and what's driving us and it's um it even goes you know I've, i've been spending um lately like you know past few years a lot on the subject of neurodiversity and that comes like more from the personal experience, one of my older sons, um, he's autistic and he has a DHD Um, and, you know, this whole topic of neurodiversity, it it just fascinates me Mm. again. Very curious to learn about new things, (laughs) but seriously, I, it's an incredible area just to think, well, um, By including in our teams, you know, within financial industry or without tech, within other industries, uh, and going even beyond what we just discussed, but also thinking about how different brains might work and what benefits it brings, you know, all this, the diverse team equals best results, but it needs to be very carefully managed and one key element for success here is mutual trust and respect when there is no trust within the team you know it, it doesn't matter how diverse it is but this mutual trust and respect is like a bi- binding like glue mm. for, for any team i'm so passionate ab- about the topic so i can talk for hours you you, you need to guide me <laughs> <Stop>.
0: <laughs> well so i've brought this up once or twice in the show but the the way i think about companies is as if they're just like tribes because I'm, I'm a huge fan of the book sapiens mm-hmm. um, if you've read that book and in that it talks about how like for example uh, property rights so um just the, the concept of law and order right is actually It's a made up thing. It doesn't exist, right? Uh, It doesn't actually exist. It only exists because we believe it exists, right? And the only way that we know that it exists is because we communicate with each other. So we communicate between us so we have an understanding that there is law and there is order because if we don't follow that law and order, something will happen. It's a story that we tell each other, Mm -hmm. right? And so to your point around communication, effective communication is vital for that very reason because without that, without the trust, you don't know which direction you're going, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, uh, uh, absolutely. And you know, I I've been like specializing all um, you know, most of my career in alternative investing and I do think it's quite a, you know, quite a distinct area compared to other more traditional asset classes. Even in the way um investors think within you know private equity, real estate infrastructure um in like the way they communicate is so important because let's say if you are an equity investor literally tomorrow and maybe you are already doing it, you you know you invest an X amount of money, you build out your portfolio, nothing really. Um, stops you from building a very successful portfolio. You know, if you have a good understanding of the market, some technical skills to understand how to analyze the companies and, you know, read the macro, um, macro fundamentals. But I always think within, let's say, infrastructure, there are so many complexities even within each of those asset classes and so many various um, groups involved in ensuring Mm. this asset is taken from, let's say, greenfield development asset down to one of the best performing assets five to seven years ago. It's also very long-term. So I feel in the area where i've been working this you know effective communication active listening and the ability to connect all those subgroups and you know the the co- complex concepts connect them together um that that was really important to learn over time um and it's also you know honestly i i worked in in a in a few countries um <laughs> and it's it's so funny, but every time I would say it is such a small industry. Yeah. It's such a small industry. It's incredible. Um, you know, I, I would still sometimes like bump virtually or even physically in Sydney with some of the either ex colleagues or people I met when I was in the U.S. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just you know it's a much smaller industry. If you think if we currently have hundred trillion. US dollars of assets under management globally, Mm. that's for asset managers, not, not, I'm not talking about uh, asset owners. It's about, um, gosh, about 30 roughly is in alternatives. So, you know, it's only a fairly small portion Mm. of that huge. market is is an alternative so it is a small world so kind of just you know closing the loop by saying that relationship effective communication in in alternatives is you know extremely important
0: Mm. i was uh I was actually going to ask you this question later in the show, but I'll do it now. I was actually chatting to a venture capitalist yesterday and you've got a glass of water there in front of you, Daniel. I've actually got a cup of coffee, but you can't see in the glass. But for anyone that's listening, I want you to imagine that uh, there's a glass of water, it's half full and you tip the glass to one side and it creates like a wave that goes up one side, but then it comes rippling back the other way and hits the other side of the glass. And this is how the venture capitalist spoke about people that start early stage companies. And he was saying that basically there has to be something that drives them off balance to do something out of the ordinary to mm. to achieve the results that they want to achieve. And I just thought that was a really interesting, I guess, anecdote or example of how you get in your in in your words, maybe so say people that may be neurodiverse, you know, um, that have some sort of whether it's anxiety or or something that triggers them to go and do something really interesting and really fascinating that's outside the norm, which is just fascinating to me. I just I just love that. But my question was more so around, I was sitting in the conversation with him yesterday and he's one of Australia's best venture capitalists, or at least that's what everyone tells me down here. <laughs> I'm quite new, new to it, right? He's super successful if you look at the companies that he's invested in, right? But I was sitting there thinking if I was an alternative investor like you are how how do you judge a venture capitalist like we're judging the funds or the 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 venture capitalists who judge the earliest stage companies right so this is like at the pointiest of the pointy end and you're making a decision on if this is a good venture capital fund or investor that I should back how do you think about that
1: yeah so look I think To start with, um, Australia or Australian venture capital would be still, or I would say it's still in that baby stage, uh, baby age, compared to, let's say, US or even European venture capital um, sectors. Because realistically, in Australia, we don't really have um, that many venture capital fund managers who went through at least one cycle of fully realized portfolio. So mm-hmm. often when you go and look at various venture capital plays here, um, you do find this tendency of rolling portfolio companies from one fund into another by giving them time to continue growing, to further capital raisings, fundraisings, et cetera but there are not that many that have been fully realized so for me looking mm. at this i do get quite nervous when i don't have the data on realized track record and for okay. me talking about performance of the existing portfolio companies within venture capital is not you know it does not necessarily give me the full picture of what's your skill set on executing strategies like Mm. venture capital? That's the first point. The second point within WMA portfolio, there is some exposure to venture capital, but my intention is really to fully exit those positions and I haven't been making any new allocations. Why? Because that's probably one of, or maybe one asset class within alternatives that has the highest beta, equity beta. So if you think about this, um, you know, from the bigger picture, why do you want to invest in alternatives, Um, right? Like if you want tomorrow to go and invest outside equities or fixed income, you know, you want private equity, real estate, why do you want it? And one of the key reasons often uh, is looking for more diversification within your portfolio. So you do want to see asset classes that don't have such a high equity beta. The reason venture has high equity beta, because the main exit point for venture capital deals is to go through IPO. So it's inevitable the equity valuations will spill into venture capital. Whatever is happening within the listed equity markets will, uh, you know, impact um, venture capital valuation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for me, it's it hasn't been really an area where I would say I am going to invest more capital, or I really want to invest more time to find the best in class. And I'm sure, I'm I'm sure there are you know excellent people and i met some incredible people from australian venture capital sector i'm more thinking you know what i want to achieve with wma portfolio and what do we stand for when we um we talk to our shareholders and it's just not the most natural fit within the portfolio
0: yeah that's and that's fair um it, interestingly do you think just maybe one little follow up question here before we move on from this. But do you think, so w- would it be fair to say that one of the key risks in venture capital then is the exit?
1: It is absolutely one of the key risks. Sorry, I was just thinking what is it like, what I would say, like the, <laughs> the risk that you'd, uh, that you'd assess before thinking about the exit. And obviously, that's the whole skill set in terms of how you source the deals, how you identify the deals. A lot of this, Owen, is about people's skills mm, because it is, yeah. you are basically often backing a founder or two or three founders, and you really have to buy into those people or into the, their ideas, into their businesses. Um, so that would be like the first area where you assess the risk. And then, yes, the second, um, that's a huge risk, uh, is the um, what are the exit options? Um, you know... It's worth remembering. And I do know this asset class often gets a lot of media attention mm. because it's, it's an exciting area, right? Like it's exciting area and you expect some absolutely stellar returns. So important to remember that any venture capital portfolio would have very high dispersion between losers and winners. And often, you know, the general rule of thumb is that you'd have 70% losers Mm -hmm. and then, you know, if you're lucky, 30% winners (laughs) within the portfolio. And so, you know, I often say, look, you just need to know your own risk appetite when you think about investing in this asset class. If you can take this risk, absolutely go for it. But if you can't, then, you know, it's it's not the right fit. Um, I do get questions like in terms of the timing, what's happening with venture capital, because obviously last year there was a lot of capital raised uh, mm. by Australian venture capital. I think, you know, record um, like over a billion dollars uh, dry powder, which is like a record for the Australian market. Um, and many investors for obvious reasons got very nervous about late stage venture capital, there were also quite a few pre-IPO strategies in the market. Um, and you know when when I when I think about this asset class from the opportunity set perspective, I do think investors will continue finding some really great deals at the early stage because venture capital is very long term you know, it's longer than private equity. Um, It's unreasonable to expect that you'd realize the deals within five to seven years period. It's usually 10, 12, or even sometimes longer. So it does take time and finding those uh, businesses, founders, startups in sectors where you see strong structural tailwinds, absolutely. Mm. But that's like it comes down again to your risk appetite, every
0: mm. it Absolutely, it does. I um I was looking at I was reading before uh, we hit record. I was reading um like media releases and things that you'd done, and I noticed um in at June 30th, 2022. So this is a little while ago. Just but just give some reference to folks, um that around 42 percent of the the Wham Alternative Assets portfolio was real assets. 25% was private equity, 5.5% was real estate, and 28% was cash. But there was a particular quote in there, and I'm sorry to quote you in the uh, podcast, but you said, uh, the uncertain geopolitical and macroeconomic environment experienced during the 2022 financial year presented a strong case for investing in alternative assets that provide diversification benefits and downside protection, end quote. And um, Obviously that you talked about like correlation in the portfolio and equity beta and things like that before. I'm curious to know how much of, how much, I guess, the top down macroeconomic picture affects what you do in the portfolio. And the reason I think maybe we should add some context here, Daniel, on how the portfolio is constructed generally anyway, just to give people a sense of what's inside it, because I think when we're in really liquid markets, right, we can change pretty quick within maybe a week or two. But for yeah. you, that may be a bit different. So I'm just, maybe you can set the scene for what the portfolio is and then how that is informed by the yeah. top down.
1: Absolutely. Yes. No, that's um, that's a great question. I love, um, you know, portfolio construction area. Um, it's just uh, yeah, find it really interesting to think about. Mm. The goals, like what are our goals? What are we delivering to our shareholders? Um, So for me, it's always like the starting point, Owen, is always what are your investment beliefs, right? Like what do you believe in terms of when you invest in um, XYZ? Do you expect um, excess returns over, let's say, you know, equity uh, benchmark? Do you expect a certain amount of risk? How much liquidity? Uh, How much actual illiquidity can you take within the portfolio? Uh, What about your geographical exposure or sector exposure? What are your ethical or impact investing beliefs? Uh, What are your ESG reporting requirements? So I always like taking a step back and thinking, right, so who are our shareholders? Talk to them. Understand what are they looking for and of course it's not always possible to meet every single shareholder request because we have over 4500 in, in shareholders in, in WMA so but building that knowledge on their feedback on their questions um is really important for me and basically when i think about wma portfolio that's a one stop solution for an Australian retail investor Mm. who wants to add diversification to their investment portfolio, who wants to get access to diverse portfolio in terms of sectors, strategies, and megatrends. And I can talk about this uh, in more details Mm. in a second. And who is looking for some upside, i.e. capital growth over time, but also at the same time wants to see fairly stable, regular income stream. So this to me, you know, it's, this is like a checklist, like a shaping list for the portfolio that I want to construct. So I always start, okay, long-term, I want to see about 40% of the portfolio invested in more income producing strategies. And this could be core infrastructure, core real estate, private debt, some of the real assets like water rights, they would serve this purpose. And they are very long term. You expect the yield in particular in asset class like infrastructure to be fairly predictable. Mm -hmm. It's just based on the nature of the contractual revenues that assets have, very similar to some of the core um, real estate strategies um, and Private debt is an interesting one because you basically also see this asset class as a a natural interest rate hedge, right? Because Mm. most of the time within private debt, deals are structured as floating rates. So as interest rates rise, you expect your running yield will also rise over time. And then the rest, about 60%, would be invested in growth, part of the portfolio and in gross part of the portfolio, you include equity, you include more opportunistic strategies with high risk within infrastructure, real estate, real assets, et cetera, et cetera. So that's for me more about the risk return profile. I do want to see some inflation protection within the portfolio, in particular, in this current environment, but also long term, and alternative assets, they are excellent and delivering it within the portfolio. Again, not not all like private equity probably would be the lowest chance of <laughs> delivering inflation <laughs> hedge, but you know something like let's say healthcare, real estate. Um, Usually, you'd look at the assets uh, where a tenant is, you know, public or private hospital, and the lease would be very long. It's usually 10 years plus, and typically, it would have annual CPI increase. So, perfect inflation hedge, mm. right? Like very kind of secure, stable, uh, growing with inflation, Um I also see alternatives as an area where investors can access sectors and themes that are otherwise are not accessible in fixed income or equities. And if you think Owen about our Australian equities market, where is it all concentrated?
0: The banks resources yeah. exactly
1: that's it. That's it, but it's literally the two areas. Where we have the highest concentration within the index. So, if you are an investor and we're talking, you know, I'm talking broadly uh, about retail investors, moms and dads, people who are close to their retirement age, you know, they would perhaps choose to go passive sometimes, not necessarily going active and just having exposure to one asset class with high volatility, with such a concentration within the sectors, you know, doesn't really give much room to think which trends I can access or I want to access. So, to me, having this very clear view on long-term macro fundamental fundamentals is really important. So, I call it like megatrends, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, we can call it macro trends, but in other words, it's basically the trends that we see within our economy and society that have very long-term, strong tailwinds. And I focus on the four where I really have the highest conviction. One is the growing aging population. You know, very, very hard to argue with that. All the statistics that show that our population will continue aging, which also means this puts enormous pressure on the existing healthcare system. Excellent sector for alternatives, right? Because you Mm. can invest in healthcare through real estate. You can invest in healthcare through infrastructure. You can invest in healthcare through private equity. All those routes are available. And to me, it's an excellent trend because it's very likely to continue long-term. The market is definitely undersupplied but the demand keeps growing. So there is a lot of room for further growth. Mm. One example, second would be climate change. And it's again, you know, the the theme that's very hard to argue because by now we already have the actual statistics, the actual facts showing us that we are experiencing more frequent uh, extreme weather condition, uh, conditions and events. And, you know, the, the three years uh, of La Niña in Australia is very unusual. It is very unusual because usually when we look at the interchange between El Niño and La Niña, it it kind of used to happen within every 18 months or so. And we've been three years into this period of increased rainfall. And there are many other, like you just open the news and every day you'd read something is happening around the world. So to me, what does it mean? I look at this trend and I think about renewable energy infrastructure. I think about new technology connected with energy transition that can be accessed via private equity, I think about sustainable agriculture that can be done through, you know, building energy efficient greenhouses, et cetera, et cetera. The third one is digitalization. And it's, uh, again, something that, you know, I, I've never met anyone so far saying, you know, like, what is this trend? Like, it's it's non-existent. Again, we are very unlikely to go back um, in terms of pre pandemic times, I I really see the period when we were going through uh, the COVID, um, it accelerated the trend enormously where we really felt technology affected every aspect of our life, work, um, food, health, children, like everything was suddenly connected with technology. So Again, Owen, you know, like it, it's uh, it's a great opportunity set within alternatives to tap into technology. So we we are actually we just um, c- committed recently capital to one very exciting deal that actually supported by both trends, growing aging population and technology. So we'll we'll be announcing it soon. Um and then the the final one is increasing demand for food. Um it has been there for a while and it will be there for a while. If you look at the world population uh, globally we just hit 8 billion and the scientists were predicting that we'll hit that number by 2030. You know it's all going more rapidly, it's all um, going into the direction and at a speed that no one really expected, no one predicted. And again, for me, it's one of the themes that I can invest in through agriculture, through water rights, private equity, real estate, if I think about you know industrial last mile logistics and the whole supply chain. So in other words, when you think about portfolio construction, there is no one element that you think about, this is the most important one to look at or to assess when you construct the portfolio. It's um, understanding you know, the investment beliefs, understanding the investment goals of your investors and you know what they want to achieve by investing in that portfolio, but then also positioning that portfolio successfully long term mm. successfully long term. I you know, I've been thinking when b- before we we met today, um, I've been thinking about uh, one of your question questions was about you know personal style of investing or something like a lesson learned um, or what events shaped mm. you you know being who you are, like in the way you invest. I am quite unusual, probably within alternatives, that I do spend a lot of time assessing the risks and assessing the downside. To me, this is so important. And it could be, I don't know, like some studies say, you know, female portfolio managers, they just tend to spend <laughs> much more time <laughs> on assessing the risks. Uh, but I also like when I think back, Like I experienced at, you know, fairly young age, how, you know, one political or financial event can just wipe out your Mm. wealth, your assets, everything you have. And to me, it was always about not focusing entirely on the upside, which if you think about you know venture capital, private equity, they focus a lot on the upside. And then if you think about uh, private debt investors, they tend to focus a lot on the downside. Mm. <laughs> so I'm probably more like in the group of when when you talk to someone who manages like senior loans, you know they'll <laughs> be spending a lot of time assessing the risks. Um, this is really important to me, and I I think. It's not just from what I learned in my professional career, but it's also what I learned like through life, um, you know, experiencing those um, extreme events. So w- within the portfolio, again, I would focus a lot on quality across the asset classes um, rather than looking what's like what's the maximum upside that I, I can achieve.
0: Yeah. I like that. There's so many books that profile great investors say that the first point of call is the risk, like knowing your downside before you calculate your upside, right? And so many of us just skip straight to the second bit because it's more fun. Uh, so just to just to recap, there, I, I wrote down the uh, the four, that uh, I guess, trends or mega trends, which were the aging population, uh, climate change, digitization, and, and food demand. I mean, they're all so interesting. I. I Obviously, being inside the listed investment company structure helps because you can offer what is traditionally for institutional investors only or wholesale investors only. You can offer that to a retail audience and via the exchange, which is fantastic. I'm curious, though, how many um will say, how many transactions do you normally make in a year? And the reason I ask this is because the ticket size is usually pretty big. So as far yeah. as I know, so, Most portfolio managers, there's a really interesting study that I came across a little while ago that showed that the average portfolio manager holds a position, this is equities, equities only, for about, I think it was about seven months, um, which is quite, I think that's quite short term. But um, I'm just curious, how how often do you make a decision or change the portfolio or expect to change it?
1: Yeah. Look, I, it's... (laughs) Such a yeah, such a good observation about the equity markets, but I'm not going to go there. Okay. <laughs> um, but within um, alternatives, it's basically you know m- everything happens at a much slower pace in terms of deploying capital, closing a transaction, conducting the due diligence. It it's all you know, slower, and I don't want to say it, but I'm going to say it much more thorough (laughs) because it's illiquid, right? It's illiquid. Once you invest it, you're going to be there perhaps for five, seven, or maybe longer years. So Mm. you do need to ensure you do your proper thorough investment due diligence. You uh, check all the potential red, red flags before you commit your capital. So all this work upfront, it does take a lot of time. When I think about WMA portfolio, on average, it would be three to four, sometimes five investments per year. So if I think about you know the last two years in terms of the exits, i.e., the matured investments that we sold, we had about eight exits. And then in terms of the new commitments, um, it would be Six that we finalized, and there will be another three being finalized by the end of the year. So, And that's over the period of two years. Mm. Plus, on top of that, Owen, you'd add that if you commit your capital tomorrow to, I don't know, the next venture capital fund by Blackbird, it doesn't mean they're going to deploy your capital immediately. You might be sitting on your capital Mm. for another you know, 24 months before they call this capital from you. So very much, you know, kind of a slower pace, but also something that would require a lot of patience. There is always this rush to just go and get the capital to work. You really don't want to do it with alternatives.
0: Mm. Agreed. Um, I'll put all the links in the show notes so people can go and check out um the wma the WAM alternatives portfolio um, and see like your latest uh, insights and all that type of stuff as well as a bunch of videos uh, but i thought i'd just ask one final question do if i may which is just this is a thought-provoking question which is what's one thing that you believe about investing that few people would agree with you on <laughs> i mean there's probably a lot but <laughs> you're an alternatives manager <laughs>
1: well what is what is your
0: Well, I actually don't have a fully formed response to this, but I can tell you one that I did hear, which I was just like, oh, that's very interesting, which I was in Sydney a few months ago and an investor told me, he said, I believe the stock market should be closed four days of the week and only open once. And I thought that was really interesting because I was was thinking, yeah, it would just like, think about how much more productive so many people would be if they just spent the other four days of their week doing something else. Um, yeah. I'd probably be out of a job, mind you. But <laughs> I just thought that was really interesting. Uh, I can't remember what Jeff said either, uh, Jeff Wilson. I can't remember exactly what he said, yeah. but I, I'm sure someone listening to this would. Yeah. But I, I'll have to. I'll have to take it on notice. I put you on the spot, but I'll have to take you on notice because and and uh, and send you my answer by email because I can't yes. think of it right now. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, that's that, because like it's not, you know, it's not an easy one. It's not like something. I don't know. I'd be kind of mm-hmm. answer immediately. Um, but I, like I would say one is, I want to say doubt the facts, doubt your knowledge. And I think that many people Like many other portfolio managers, they would disagree with me because there is very common belief you have to have really strong conviction when you make investment decisions. Now, when I'm saying doubt yourself and doubt your knowledge, what I mean by that is look for more. Always look for more information. Always look for more input in terms of the analysis and understand how it all connects, all the pieces of information. Because once you, or once I am in that state where I feel I'm 100% convinced, this is where I risk losing some of the most important factors when I do my analysis.
0: Mm, I think that's fantastic
1: thank you <laughs> what do they say Stop with it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now i'll put you on the spot and that's great so what do they say strong ideas loosely held is probably
1: it's probably <laughs> the, it's
0: probably the good one i i think that's so true like the you know the famous quote i i changed my opinion when the facts change or something like that you know it's so, so important for us to change our minds but we're we're taught almost as a profession down here that you have to have conviction because that's how you you instill confidence in your investors but yeah investing is just a perpetual learning journey isn't it so um, the only way you can do that is if you're constantly open-minded so I really appreciate you taking the time to join me uh, remotely so I enjoyed- I'll, I'll follow you up when I have an answer to that question I'll send you an email and say this is my answer to the, to the question um, but <laughs> I hope I hope to meet in person one day so thank you for taking the time to to join me on the show
1: thank you very much Owen nice to meet you